And we're into chapter 4 of 1 Peter. And if you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry. The words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me. Let's read this together. Actually, don't read it together. I'm going to read it. You can just read along with me. It says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that all glory and dominion does belong to you forever and ever. And we meet in this fabulous building built for your glory, but you're much more interested in the, the building that you're creating here, your church, the people of God, created to display your glory to this world, to live out your glory in our lives. And we can only do any of that by the strength and power that you supply by the Holy Spirit. So we pray you would come and fill us now again, enable us to, to hear, to listen, to understand. We pray you'd speak directly into our hearts this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. The building we, we, we meet in, as you may have noticed, a magnificent place, um, was named, as was the park across the road, named after a poet and a playwright called Joost van den Vondel, who was actually, he was born in Germany, but the Dutch claim him as their own. He lived in Holland for most of his life. And he, he would be kind of the Dutch equivalent of William Shakespeare. He wrote many, many plays and poems. Uh, there was an Englishman called George Barrow who said that Joost van den Vondel was by far the greatest man that Holland ever produced. Now, obviously, he'd never listened to any of Two Unlimited or, uh, or Lee Towers. That was a joke just for the Dutch there. <laughs> but uh, the, for, uh, for a playwright like this guy in the, in the 17th century, uh, the role of being a, a, a writer of plays was much more than just pen on paper. They would have had a role in, in producing the, the productions, sometimes even of picking the cast members, of directing the show. It would have been a very important role that would have encompassed a whole load of different things. And in many ways, that's a bit of a picture of how Jesus is directing and conducting his church, the people of God. Jesus is this great playwright writing and producing this wonderful drama that we get to be a part of. And he directs us as his church to be a people of, of love. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. How we get to kind of perform on his stage and live out the radical implications of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for us. How we're to be a people of love to one another and to this city. 
The first thing that we should probably pick up on is because some of you guys are thinking, well, that's all well and good, but what about that verse right at the start there where he said, the end of all things is at hand? Surely we should talk about that because, you know, we've all seen in the movies or maybe, you know, in the middle of Down Square, someone wearing like a, a sandwich board with the end is near written on it to try and, you know, scare you and freak you out that the world was just about to end and disappear in the cloud of annihilation. Um, and it's, a, it's an important question to ask, well, what does, what does the Bible mean? What does this verse mean when it says the end of all things is at hand? If you've forgotten, there it is. The end of all things is at hand. Now, this isn't supposed to, to scare us. It's not supposed to put fear in us. It's not like an announcement of nuclear war is about to take place. It's not an announcement of impending doom. But we, we live in a, in a creation where the reality is, and Jesus has promised that he's going to come again. That we live in this kind of moment, this new age after the cross, that Jesus came and he died for us, he rose again, he's ushered in this new kingdom, and he will come again to rescue his people and to take us to live with him in eternity forever, to be with him as his children. And you can, I guess you could react in lots of different ways, but we could, the danger would be we could go in a kind of a bunker mentality and the church just kind of hides away. We stock up on baked beans and, uh, and powdered milk and just, you know, wait for the impending doom to come and hit us. Or we can, we can live with a very different attitude. And this passage here is calling us to a life of of pursuit of God, of a life of following him and devotion to him. Now, a, a way I was trying to explain this in my head earlier in the week is if, if you've ever played football, soccer, um, you know, you play a kind of a 90-minute game like the Champions League final last night, but most of us when we play would be more, you're just playing in the park with some friends, that's what I would have done when I was a kid, uh, and you, you just play kind of endless games. You play until the sun goes down or you get tired. There's no time limit on it. And as the game goes on, everyone gets tireder and tireder. And people forget even what the score was because it's like 17, 15 or whatever. The game goes on and on. And then someone will say those magic words. I don't know if you experienced this. Well, they'll say, should we play next goal wins? And next goal wins means the next person to score, their team wins. And everything else that's gone before is forgotten. And suddenly this new lease of life comes and all these tired, grumpy people who've just sweaty and exhausted, suddenly all their energy comes again because there's an end in sight and they want to win the game. They want to get into action. And this is kind of what Peter is encouraging us to do here. He's saying it could be a day, it could be a thousand years, but yet there's an end coming. We're not just, because so often we live in this world and the city around us lives as though there's never going to be an end. Even to our own lives, we live as though we're eternal beings. We don't worry about the consequences. We just float along through life and then all of a sudden we get old and think, goodness me, there is an end after all, even for my own life. I never realized this. And Peter's trying to wake us up and saying there's, there is an end. There's a day of reckoning coming. How are you going to live? How are you going to live in response to that? What is your life going to look like? And it, it, we can still enjoy life, but we're living every day now in the implications of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And that changes everything about how we're to live. 
about how we're to interact with other people. And he says, he says here, above all, keep loving one another. That's the, the point he wants to make to us. Above all, above everything else, keep loving one another. Keep loving one another. And we're going to look a little bit at what that love is, what that love means this morning. And first of all, it's important to say that love is, love is earnest, as he says here. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, which means to like love each other deeply. Or love each other, a better way of saying it would be constantly to keep on loving one another again and again. The Bible talks about love being patient. Another way you could translate patient would be long suffering. <laughs> suffering for a long time. That's sometimes what love is. What is to be patient in a relationship. To learn how to suffer one another. To put up with one another's weaknesses. To learn how to walk alongside another broken human being and support and love one another. It says that love should forbear, should keep going after one another. It says in Colossians here, we should bear with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all, all of these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, which sounds very magnificent, but it's not easy, is it? If you've been in any sort of relationship, you'll know that love, if you're to persist in it, isn't easy. And our world treats love as something for, for a Friday night, something just to dismiss, something that, well, I tried it over there and that didn't work, I'll try it over here instead. And we're trained to bounce from relationship to relationship trying to find someone that fulfills us, and if they don't, we dump them and move on to the next thing. But the love the Bible talks about is very different. I'm not just talking about marriage, relationships. I'm talking about all relationships. We're supposed to love one another in a radical way, in the way that Christ loves us. We love each other in the same way, which isn't easy, that's difficult. And this love is, is gracious. He goes on to say, keep loving one another earnestly since love is an important verse. A multitude of sins. Now this is an important verse to explain because this could be misunderstood. What we're not saying, it doesn't say that love um, kind of conceals sin. Because sometimes we find that temptation in our own hearts just to hide away those things that are in the kind of darkest parts of our heart. We don't want anyone to see those things. Or sometimes we, someone else sees them or we see them in other people. And we're not saying we should just conceal, hide away sins, hide away abuses. Sadly, the church in these days is famous for that. Hiding away things that should have been brought into the light. And yet the church historically in some cases has hidden those things away and that isn't what this verse is saying in any way but love it does know how to to overlook which is a different thing and what Peter's doing is he's quoting from Proverbs where it says this hatred stirs up strife but love 
covers all offenses. See, because the thing is, in our lives, there are so many minor things. There's so many kind of little peccadilloes, little moments in our life where we're just not perfect, are we? So much of my life is so far from being perfect. And if we were constantly picking holes in one another all the time, constantly pulling out the little moments, the, little effect, the tiny little things, it would, it would be crushing, wouldn't it? Maybe, maybe some of you know what that's like. You've been in a relationship, maybe you've had a parent that's picking at you all the time, picking, just taking things off of you. That can be exhausting. That can be draining. That can just rob you of any joy in your life. And that's not the sort of love we're talking about because love knows what it is to forgive one another. Another verse from the Proverbs which is helpful, it says, the beginning of strife is like letting out water so quits before the quarrel breaks out. If you imagine a massive big dam and someone comes and pulls out a tiny plug out of the dam and the water starts coming through, sooner or later the force of that water through that hole will just expand the hole and break out and destroy the whole thing. And that's often what can happen in, in relationships that we can pick a tiny hole in someone but we don't know what we've just unlocked. <laughs> we don't know the torrent that will flood out and we, so often we just start quarrels by bringing up silliness. And what, what, this, what we're trying to say here is don't hold grudges with people. Don't hold grudges. So often we can let bitterness rise up in our hearts and then when we think about it, we think, do you know what, that was just such a minor thing. You know, I could have just forgiven them in the moment and we could have moved on and yet I've let this tiny thing grow into something in my heart which is now unhelpful. Be, be quick to forgive people. We try and train our kids in that all the time. Just be quick to forgive. Sometimes we can feel like the forgiveness is more valid if we leave it a weekend to really brew up, you know? To come to some sort of moment of forgiveness and think, yes, this is real forgiveness because it's taken me a week to get here. Now that's nonsense. Be quick to forgive. You don't have to, and it's not like, oh, my heart now feels ready. Sometimes you need to kind of forgive almost through gritted teeth. And then when you do that, God will do something inside of you to, ch to change your heart. Think, think the best of people. <laughs> so often we're always thinking uh, it, it, the, the, the most cynical negative things about people. Just think the best about people. If you want to work out grace in your life, that's a really good, simple tip. It's just when you can, think the best of people. I don't mean to be naive, because as we said, we don't want to conceal things. But if you can, think the best of people. Now, an important question is, oh, first of all, let me just mention this first, because this is really important. Another one from Proverbs, it says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. That's a really important point. It's actually, there's something of the glory of God. There's something of you that shines brightly if you're able to overlook an offense, just to look past it, just to let it move on. But an important question is, how do I know, how do I know when to overlook something or when something needs to be confronted? 
Because the Bible says we should speak the truth in love, that we should confront people. How do I know when I should overlook something? And how do I know when I should confront something? Well, probably the best answer to say would be to, what does love require? Which is a bit kind of ethereal and out there, doesn't it? What does love require? <laughs> but it, yes, thank you. But it's an important point. What does, what does love require? Because it says that uh, we're to speak the truth in love on one hand, and the other way, on the other hand, it says love covers a multitude of, a multitude of sins. So you speak the truth, you confront people sometimes in love, never out of love, never to prove a point, to bring them down a notch or two, to make yourself feel a bit better about yourself, to get something off your chest. No, you speak the truth because you love them. Because you, because you have to get to that place you think, if I really love them, I need to help them to see this in their life, to really help them grow. They've got something that's blocking them in their life. If I just let that there, because I'm too scared to confront it, I'm not actually loving them. Sometimes we think love is just never offending anybody. But sometimes love is, for a moment, for a while, having to graciously offend somebody because you want them to find freedom. You want them to walk in the good of knowing Jesus. So sometimes we need to say to someone, look, there's something in your life that we need to talk about. So we speak the truth in love, but also that it's, it's love that covers a multitude of sin, not fear. You can cover something up because you're scared. You're scared to really tell them the truth. You're scared to confront it. Maybe you feel, you feel forced to conceal it. You're scared of what someone's gonna say to you. You feel you've been put in a box and you have to. Well, that's not love covering a multitude of sins, isn't it? That's fear covers a multitude of sins, and that, that's not true. It's not because we feel guilty it's not because we want to try and manipulate them. It's love. We speak the truth in love and we, we overlook in love. And the most important thing always is to remember that this is, it's a, we're loving as Jesus loves us. It says in Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Isn't that amazing? It's just incredible. Just to, sometimes, that's a great verse just to read every day. Let that sink into your heart and then to work out what that means for your relationships. Man, I wanna love people like that, the same way that Jesus loves me. It's not easy, but that's a great goal to live for. We love people how God loves us. And also love, it, it invades our sacred spaces. Love invades those places of our life that we've kind of locked away and we've hidden away and we've kept safe. And it's fascinating here that 
that Peter, he's talked about love, and then he, he gives us the example of hospitality. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's the example that Peter wants to use to us. That's his kind of tangible definition of this is what love can look like. Show hospitality. And that's a really important thing for us to consider in the age we live in because the kind of the ideal that we have of home is quite a new thing, really. The way we treat our home, our house, our apartment, we do tend to treat them as kind of sacred spaces. That this hour, that's my, that's my place where I'm comfortable. That's a place where I just feel at rest and at home. And that, that's my place. It's not anyone else's place. You know, I might invite them in there if they're really nice to me, but really this is my place. That's how we treat our, our homes, but that's not the way the Bible encourages to treat them. We're not to treat them as our kind of own personal domains. But he says, show hospitality. In a real practical sense, invite people into your home. Love them. Lavish them with things that they might not be able to get. Now, you might think, hold on a second, I just don't have any space, right? 86% of people in Amsterdam live in an apartment. Probably most of you live in an, an apartment. And a lot of those are, are one-bedroom apartments. They're small, okay? Some of you are thinking, I'd love to just have a bedroom. You know, I have a room. And that's everything in one space. You know, hospitality is difficult for me because it's like, come around for dinner, sit on my bed, you know? <laughs> it's, it's a difficult thing to consider. But it's a re- you can... You could find other ways, perhaps, to show hospitality. You know, I had some, some friends of mine in Brighton. They got to know a guy who had been living homeless for a while. They managed to find himself some accommodation, but then for some reason he was kicked out. He arrived on their doorstep in the evening and said, I've got nowhere to stay. And they said, well, we'll just come and stay with us. But they lived in, in a one-bedroom apartment or house. I'm not sure, but only a one-bedroom. So they let him, him, this homeless guy, sleep in their bed. And they slept, a newly married couple, they'd been married just a few months at the time, and they slept on the couch downstairs. That, that's radical, right? <laughs> that's not an easy thing to do. And they, it's not like they knew this guy a bit, but they didn't know him well. I don't know if I could do that. Could I trust someone who's homeless, who I don't really know, and say, come and sleep in my bed? That's radical hospitality. That's what Peter's calling us to here. It's not a normal way of living. It's something completely different. So you could, and it might be, it might be for you, just buy someone a meal. You'd have to do it in your home. Buy someone a coffee. Invest in people in a real kind of real way. Display your love to people. But you might think still, why, are we, why focus on hospitality? We could talk about so many different aspects of what love is. Why talk about hospitality? Well, I think, we'd, well, we're talking about it because it's here in the book. You know, Peter's just told us to. But it's, it's, a huge, it's a huge weapon for the church in the age that we live in. It's a massive, massive weapon. Because we talk about it a lot here, but one of the huge issues in our city is loneliness. It's a massive issue. Partly, one of the main reasons is because so many people live in, in apartments. Often, 
I think there's something like 180,000 people in this city that live by themselves, just one person in an apartment. There was a survey that came out just this week, a study that said it, it found that regularly eating meals alone is the biggest single factor for unhappiness. So that's a really easy way for you to do something practical that brings happiness into people's lives is just inviting them around for a meal. Maybe you just want to have a think about who do I know that would regularly eat meals alone? And maybe you could just say, just go up to them and say, hey, how about, and not just a one-off, but maybe say, look, once a month, once a week, why don't you just come in? You know, if you're a family, just invite them to come and be part of your family. You know, and your kids can throw food at them and, you know, <laughs> rub carrots into their head and stuff. They'll love it, they will. Invite them in. And if they don't love it, they'll go somewhere else. That's fine. <laughs> if you're a single person, then find, find a group of you just to hang out together. Say, so let's, just, let's just hang out once a week. And not just people here, but we can take that out into the city around us. Find those that you work with that on a lunch break, they always just go and sit out by the canal and just eat a sandwich by themselves. And just go and, go and sit with them. Think about how you could invest in people. Show love in a really practical, practical way. So love invades our sacred spaces, but it also invades our heart, because he says, show hospitality to one another, one another without grumbling. I don't know, I never grumble, but I've heard it's a thing that people do. But uh, so often we can, <laughs> see, I love, what I love about the Bible is it knows what we're like. It's just real, isn't it? <laughs> Peter's written this and he's thought, oh yeah, there's, there's probably people are going to grumble about this. You know, really? And it can be a real thing if you're regularly inviting people into your home. There's, there's things that you've got to do that will be tiring. Things that you've got, you know, you've got to clean up. You've got to cook dinner. You've got to wipe up the crumbs off the floor. Maybe if you're a bit more introverted, you think, oh, I've got to talk to them. Oh. You know? <laughs> But what Peter's trying to do is he's trying to get right into our hearts. He's addressing the things right in here. And say, let your hospitality, not, not just lip service, but let it be something real that comes out from what God has done within you. Okay, let's move on. Love, love is something that's supplied to us. This is wonderful good news, something that we receive. It says, as we go on into verse 10, each has, as each has received the gift, these, these tools that we get to live out our life with, these tools of love, not just hospitality, lots of different things, they're, they're gifts that God's given us. And there's an assumption here that, that all of us have something to offer. All of us within the church or in the people to, of God have a role to play. We have something unique to bring. We have something unique, a, a special contribution that, that we can make. And these gifts, are, they're not just that each of us has them, but they're for each other. They're for us to bless and serve one another. Elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about them, the gifts of the Spirit being for the edification, the building up of the church. We're to serve and love one, one another, to see the church flourish, not just for us. They have the common property of the church. 
Because so often, particularly if you, if you read some of the bits of the Bible where it talks about some more kind of uh, charismatic gifts or things like this, standing on a stage, speaking, we can beware that actually they, they become more about us than they become about everybody else. They become about displaying what God's given me to do and fulfilling my purpose. Because we're, we live in an individualistic culture, that's how we're trained to think. What are you gonna achieve? What, what are you gonna make out of your life? How are you gonna fulfill the potential in you? And actually, that's not what God says to us. He says, how are you gonna invest in the church, the people of God, see a community, a family flourish into life? What part are you gonna play in God's bigger story that's far beyond you? That's something I wanna live for. So much more important. And this, these gifts that he's, he's given us, they're, they're, as it says here, we're to be good stewards of God's varied grace. It's his, it's his grace that we get to invest in other people, and it comes in lots of different shapes and sizes. It's varied, it's manifold, is another way the Bible puts it. There's lots of different versions of how God wants to love us, lots of different ways he wants to use you. So you can often think like, but I wanna be like that person. And God says, no, I don't want you to be like that person. I want you to be like the things I've invested in you. It's not about us just seeing another pe- someone else and thinking, well, I'll, I'll take those gifts that they have and I'll, I'll kind of take that pro forma there and I'll put it onto myself. It's no, God's put something in you, a unique thing that he wants you to bring. And all of it is about mediating, about bringing to the people of God his grace. It's his varied grace that we're displaying to one another. And in our in our, how we serve one another, how we speak even, here and in other settings, we're doing it all and, and the purpose is to mediate, to bring his grace to the people of God. See, uh, one way to dis- describe it would be, I don't know if you know like what a, what a prism is, like you get it in like a, maybe like a diamond, or a jewel, or you can create them like a triangle sort of thing, and you shine light into it, and what happens is it refracts the light. The light comes in as like a single beam, and then it, when it fires into it, it shoots out in lots of different colors and shapes and varieties. Do you know what I'm talking about? Good. That's, that's, that's how God has designed the church, the people of God. That he, he showers his love on us, he shines his light beam of grace onto the church and it fires out in so many different colors and shapes and sizes and varieties and it should hit each of us but it fires out into the city around us. It's what God wants his church to be, this prism that he shines his light into it and something beautiful is displayed around us. The grace of God fires out in so many different ways and colors and means. And all of this we practice by, his, by the strength that God supplies. All of these gifts, all of these things, all the way that we mediate, deliver his grace, we all do that by his strength. That's God at work through you. He's using you, but it's his, his strength. And it's, it's strength that's, the Bible says elsewhere, it's perfected in weakness. 
God comes and he uses broken people. It's not like just, just so often we can think, oh, I'd love to serve, I'd love to, I'd love to do that thing, but I just need to get myself right first. I just need to fix all these areas of my life and then I'll engage in the church, but I just need to get this sorted first. That's not what the church is like. We welcome people from all sorts of different stages and life, seasons of life, with all sorts of different trials and difficulties and struggles, because no one here is perfect, not even close. But yet we welcome everybody in, say, come, you can receive God's grace. His strength is for you, it's supplied for you, not just for the elites, the special ones, for all of us. Because this is fascinating, I love this verse, because this word here where it says, the strength that God supplies, that word supplies, um, in, in the Greek, they would also use that word, it's called karagas, and they would talk about someone who would direct and perform uh, either a chorus or a production, a play. That's what that, it's a karagas. That would have been a role in Greece in the first century. They would have supplied the needs of a production. They would have organized it. They would have picked out who they wanted to sing, what roles people wanted to play. They would have funded it. They would have found the venue. They would have put it all on. They would have directed this whole production. And what, that's what God's saying to us. He's the supplier. He's the director of this beautiful, grand production, this wonderful drama, this wonderful story that he wants to tell the world, that he's supplied that. He's, he's directing the church to tell that story, the people of God to be the ones that deliver this wonderful message. Tell it. Let's just finish by reading this last verse. It says, that In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, because all of this, it's all for his glory. I mentioned at the start, Joost van den Vondel, the poet, and he wrote a poem about Lucifer, the devil, about the moment where it describes in the Old Testament where uh, Lucifer decides that he no longer wants to serve God and wants to serve his own purposes. And he wrote this in his poem, and rather would I be foremost king in any lower court than rank second in most holy light or even less. Thus, I justify my revolt. <laughs> His revolt was that he didn't want to be second or less than that. He wanted to be supreme. He wanted to be first. And that's the temptation in every one of our hearts is that we want to be first. We want to get the glory. We want people to see us and what we've done. We want people to see our feats, our displays. We could read that poem and that could be true for us sometimes, our own hearts. We want to put ourselves in first place. And sometimes so much that we think, well, I'll forsake the holy place. I'll forsake being with God if it means I get my own way. And the, the sad thing is that's how Lots of people live, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And rather, we're, we're called to live out a better story, a different story, to perform in this grand 
drama to be a part of this beautiful picture that God's creating. He's displaying to his creation, the people of God. And we are together to display and bring to our city the very wonderful grace of God. We, we get to play our part in his grand production, this drama. I think, man, I want to give my life to that, right? <laughs> Not just to living all my days, trying to, trying to get the best for myself, trying to make myself happy, trying to somehow present myself to the world and then realizing at the end, what a waste. I want to live for something so much better. Even if that means people never remember who I am. I'm forgotten in history. Who cares? I want, I want God to be remembered in history. I want him to be famous in this church, in my own heart in our lives, in this city. Whew. Okay, why don't we stand together and let me pray. God, we thank you that we get to, together as your church, the people, the bride of Christ, we get to tell this wonderful story, this such, such a better story we get to perform this wonderful production, this drama, this drama of redemption, telling the world of who you are, of what you've done, of how you died for us, how you rose again and defeated death, that we as believers in you can say we died with Christ and rose again with him. You've called us into this new life. You've poured and lavished out your grace on us that we can know freedom, that we can know forgiveness, that we can display it to those around us. And we just want to declare today, even as we sing, we want to declare together that that's the way we want to live, for your glory, for your fame, by your grace. Thank you, Jesus.